How does creating the life of your dreams in 2016 sound? Or what about helping someone else do the same? With Christmas approaching, the well and new range of inspirational products is all inspiring. Choose from vision board kits, a gratitude box, a John box, coaching packages, and more. Gifts start from just $5. To find out more, simply go to wellandyou.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-E-U-X.com. And click on the Christmas catalog to help make 2016 incredible for you and the people you care about. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat. Exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping and also in your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your neurology. To help me, as always, it's a great pleasure. I introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you? Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Always great to be here. I'm yeah, very excellent. excited about this podcast today. So what excites you? Well, look, uh, the performance, that's that's the topic, and particularly the neurology of performance, which is uh, chiropractors who have a, an interest in Neurorehabilitation, that's something that certainly excites us, but particularly just as well as uh, I think we'll have some great information to share with our back chat listeners. But from a selfish point of view, you know that I'm a little bit into cycling at the moment. Yes, you yes, know, you've been telling me a bit about this. You know who my toughest opponent is at the moment? Mm, would that be a family member? That would be my 20-year-old son. Uh, and I know we've had this conversation, just, you know, a 47-year-old father shouldn't be trying to compete with his 20-year-old son. But I'm hoping to get a few little pearls of wisdom uh, today. Yes. I'm not telling Joel about this podcast. And uh, any little extra tips that I can get, I'm, I'm right in for it. Excellent. Well, indeed. Our guest today is a chiropractor from the U.S., Dr. Matthew Adenucci. To give our listeners some background, Dr. Adenucci is a board-certified chiropractic neurologist, currently seeing patients at his Plasticity Brain Center in Orlando, Florida. He's completed a two-year residency under Professor Carrick, training in the rehabilitation of complex neurological conditions. Dr. Adenucci continued to engage in the advancement of his knowledge through completing a one-year fellowship in the areas of the following, including childhood development disorders, vestibular rehabilitation, neurochemistry and nutrition, as well as a two-year fellowship in traumatic brain injury rehabilitation. Hi, Matthew. How are you going? Very well. Thank you so much for having me on here today. I'm so excited to talk about a topic that's so kind of near and dear and passionate to me, and hopefully we can help Anthony get a little bit better so he can catch up to this song. Oh, I'm excited about that. Already. Well, look, <laughs> and I think, you know what, between you and me, Matt, I think he needs a bit of help, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, you, we'll get you. We'll get you to fix him up a bit. That's fantastic. So, Matt, I expect many of our back check listeners will know of you, but perhaps you can expand a little bit on your introduction. Let us know how how it is you came to be involved in the field of functional neurology. Well, my story maybe not be as uh, happy as most people. I was actually getting ready to step out of chiropractic because I was getting a little frustrated with the messages that I was receiving from some of my teachers at school. Uh, some of the stuff that they were talking about didn't really make so much sense to me, talking about how a thoracic spine adjustment can take the pressure off of a nerve that returns somebody's hearing. And then in my next class, which was central nervous system, we talked about how cranial nerve 8 goes inside the ear, inside the head, inside the skull, and there's no vertebra that puts pressure on it. So there was some cognitive dissonance there for me, and I just couldn't take it. And I, uh, I was getting ready to apply for med school until I met Dr. Klotzik and Dr. Carrick. And I took one of the Carrick Institute's classes on uh, the neurology of adjusting. And the way Dr. Klotzik and Dr. Carrick explained it at that time just made so much sense for me. Uh, and I really just fell in love with it. I, I mean, there's no other way to, to say it. I kind of fell into that rabbit hole, so to speak. And I just kept going further and further with this neurology pursuit. And uh, it kind of led me to where I am today. It's almost like you had an epiphany, in a sense. Yeah, it really was. I mean, looking back on it, that's exactly what it was. I mean, I took my MCATs. I applied to Emory University. Uh, you know, I was 100% prepared to go on the medical route until this all kind of happened with Dr. Carrick and Dr. Klotzik, and it kind of turned things around for me. Uh, Paul and I were, um, you know, fortunate enough to have three interviews, in fact, yes. uh, with, with Dr. Carrick, and uh, he obviously being the father of 
chiropractic functional neurology. Yes. It must have been a great experience because obviously you, you've heard him speak uh, before, Matthew, but it's not at your association with Dr. Carrick goes a lot further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, you know, between being a, a student of his and later becoming a mentor of his and now working for the Carrick Institute, um, he's certainly taken me under his wing. And it's interesting, Anthony. We all have our mentors, don't we? And, um, you know, in career, there's career-defining moments in that regard. Someone who comes and comes, takes you under their wing and then takes you along the pathway. And, and that effect is so important, isn't it? It is. And it's important both for the, the mentor and uh, the mentee. You know, we have the, the growth of a profession isn't just about um, one man, but inspiring others to then step on his shoulder and take it that little bit further. So, Matt, from yeah. what I've heard about you, you speak a lot about performance and there have been many different definitions of performance, but you take it on seems to be a little bit more comprehensive than what we've heard beforehand. In your sort of clinical development, how have you come to define performance? Well, to me, performance has always been something that was there for the elite athlete or the person that wants to be the elite athlete. But I kind of had this, like you said earlier, like an epiphany after speaking with Dr. Carrick one night, um, when he was talking about his work with coma patients, and he says that, you know, sometimes what can end up happening is he would spend 10, 12, 14 hours working with them, and all that would happen is open up their eyes. Now, the thing is, is that a comatose patient opening up their eyes and being cognizant is a huge, miraculous feat, you know, and sometimes people even say it's like, you know, watching Dr. Carrick do his work was like waking somebody up from the dead. However, when those people open up their eyes and they're conscious, Sometimes they don't get anywhere beyond that. I mean, sometimes they don't speak. Sometimes they don't walk. Sometimes they don't breathe on their own. And it kind of dawned on me that even waking somebody up from a coma is essentially enhancing their performance. I mean, let's face it. At one point, this person was unconscious. They had their eyes closed. They couldn't respond to the world. And whatever Dr. Carrick did to them made it so that they could at least interpret and respond to the world so much better. So that's how I began to create my definition of performance. My definition of performance is taking an individual, no matter where they are on this performance continuum, if they're in a coma on one end or if they're an Olympic athlete on the other end, and taking their brain and their body and making it so it takes the world in better, processes it better, and then responds to it better and more appropriately for survival and to accomplish the goal that that individual wants. So that might be shaving a millisecond off of the reaction time, which is the difference between no medal and a gold medal when you look at swimming. Or it might be something as simple as decreasing somebody's tremor that has Parkinson's disease. So that, that's kind of how I'm looking at performance at this point in time. So uh, this is interesting because in the world of chiropractic and certainly in uh, natural health, the, the bu buzzword has been wellness for a number of years. How would you sort of... Um, uh, I guess, differentiate your idea of performance and looking at that in your approach to patients as opposed to someone else who might talk about improving their wellness. Yeah, definitely. And that wellness word is is a buzz in chiropractic, but it's really a buzz in every profession. But unfortunately, nobody's defined what wellness is. So in my mind, wellness is just basically keeping somebody at a good state of health. You know, when you're somebody... This welcome concept of well care is somebody that's healthy, keeping them healthy. I think this performance or human performance optimization or human performance improvement is about taking wellness one step further. It's about making that individual not just healthy, but thriving in the world. Okay, sort of taking it to another layer by the sounds of it, Matt. I think so. So when you, I mean, you mentioned before about performance and we sort of think of performance, don't we, Anthony, in regards, you know, gold medal, athletes, strength, those sort of concepts, don't we? But you mentioned before about a tremor case, a potentially a Parkinsonian case. So it doesn't just apply to athletes then, does it, by the sounds of it? No, it, this, uh, this aspect, uh, it doesn't apply just to athletes. It applies to everybody across the board from, you know, grocery getting um, stay-at-home moms all the way to, uh, you know, recreation warriors all the way to professional athletes. So can you break it down for us then? Let's, let's uh, perhaps take an example. Uh, a patient comes into your office. Uh, you're looking to maximize their performance. Uh, where do you start? What sort of what's basic protocols would you go through? Well, I can actually give you a real-life scenario. I saw a National Basketball Association, NBA basketball player, not too long ago. And this guy is at the top of his game. He's one of the best basketball players in the world, maybe one of the best basketball players in history. And he 
came to me and he said to me, he's like, listen, doc, I've heard that you've helped a lot of people with concussions. Uh, a lot of my friends told me good things about you. I don't have a concussion. I don't have anything wrong with me, but I'm assuming if you can take somebody that has an injured brain and make them perform better. And he's like, some of these people that I've seen you fix, they're actually performing better now than they did before they had their concussion. So I'm wondering if you can make me a better basketball player. Now, let me just tell you, uh, I haven't played basketball since I was about 14 years old. So I am not an expert in basketball. Fortunately with him, I had his trainers to work with and different people. But essentially what we started doing is we started looking at, well, let's break down basketball. What do you need in basketball to be a good performer? You need to have good eye-hand coordination. You need to have a good vestibular and ocular response so that when you're running down the court, your eyes can stay focused on things. You need to know where you are in space and where space is around you. So you have to have good spatial orientation. And finally, you need to have a good uh, center of pressure, we call it, or a center of gravity. So when you jump, you're not having to shift yourself excessively forward or excessively backwards. So that's where we started with this athlete. We started looking about at all this instrumentation about looking where his balance is, his balance scores, his eye tracking, his hand and eye coordination. And what we found is even though this guy was at the top of his game, there were little things that were off on him. And um, so we ended up working with him and identifying these things and fixing them. And, you know, without giving out too much information, he went and went sort of, you know, continued to play basketball. And all across the press, people thought he was starting to use steroids. So mm. it's actually kind of funny. You know, we, he and I still laugh about it. Um, and uh, we know that he didn't do that. But that, that performance enhancement, those exercises that we were able to do with him actually took his game to the next level so much that people thought he was doing something that was illicit for his sport. Now, now did LeBron sign that basketball? Oh, sorry. No, that no, wasn't. No, can't divulge anything who that was. Um, but, but the, it's, um, it's an interesting regards. There's a number of things that have come out of this, this, this last point, I suppose. And look, balance is something which I think when we look at the health sphere, it's still really underrated in healthcare, isn't it, Matt? You know, balance is not really looked at as as a, a primary sort of tenet of well-being and health. Do you agree? No, it, it's not. Um, however, if you start digging through the medical research, balance is one of the best and most significant biomarkers that we have to identify neurological function and also musculoskeletal function. So I, um, I would assume that as people start implementing the, the, the literature, you know, taking it from bench to bedside, so to speak, this translational research, I think that people are going to start looking at balance more more frequently, especially for fall prevention. And let's maybe if we can expand on that just a little bit further and just uh, explain to our, our listeners what, you know, what balance tests you might run through in, in your practice. Do you use uh, sort of you know, sensitive computerized postography or is it just stand on one leg and see how their eyes move and see how much sway they have? The answer is yes. Um, really, you can do it with anything that you have. Uh, right now, the standard across the industry is called the BEST test, B-E-S-S, -S. and what that uh, uh, com comprises of is just a balance error scoring uh, assessment where you have somebody stand on a solid surface with their eyes closed and you count how many times they sway side to side or they got to put their hand out or their foot out, and then you just change uh, different types of environmental situations, eyes open, eyes closed, the foam, uh, foam plate or foam pad that's standing on one foot. But we use some more sophisticated technology. Um, I use the vestibular technologies, caps plate, and I have no disclosures. I don't make any money off of talking about them. I just think that they're the best plate in the world. And I know that Dr. Carrick has done some research showing measurements on the, the caps plate versus the a couple other different brands and even including a Wii Fit balance plate. And what they've shown is that this caps plate is more sensitive, a thousand times more sensitive than the next best competitor. So that's what we use to identify balance, and it helps us look at sways. It helps us look at where people are standing. And we can even see if somebody has a tremor in their, in their hand, we can see it on the balance plate. So we can actually then at that point quantify a tremor because a tremor, when it's in your hand, goes through your whole body into your feet. So we can observe these things on the balance plate. That's extremely sensitive, isn't it? That's well, it's, it's very, very sensitive. It's very in-depth, and I suppose, so in summary, we're, we're saying we're trying to combine the eyes, the ears, and our proprioceptors of the body. Is that what we're sort of saying regards those sort of inputs for balance? Is that the sort of message here? And how do you relate that maybe to performance? Yeah, absolutely. When we're looking at balance and we're looking at stability, 
really fundamentally what we're looking at is, like I said before, is where is our body and where is it in relationship to the world? And we use all sorts of senses to get that in. We actually use our six senses, right? People always talk about five senses, you know, smell, taste, mm-hmm. touch, hearing, uh, and uh, smell. Uh, I don't vision, know if I said that one. Vision, okay, yeah. But yep, that's right. Yeah, and vision, right? But the thing is, is that we also have vestibular input. So the thing is, we are really assessing all these different uh, senses to figure out where people think they are in space. And this helps us quantify and measure an athlete's orientation in space. And then once we've established where they think they are in space, then we can give them brain exercises to help them either and make where they are in space more efficient or correct where they are in space if it's not appropriate. Now, you know what? I, I think that now that what how Matt's explained it further, it makes a lot of sense how a basketball would come and see him or see functional neurologists to say, well, I want to improve my ability to shoot a basket. And, you know, the, the complex activities that requires from the foam motor skills with our digits in, in shooting the basket to the orientation of the trunk muscles, the positioning of the feet, uh, the base of support, all that is just very complicated, isn't it? If, if they can find a means by which that can be improved by just even 1%, suddenly... I see how Matt can make major changes with his patients. Well, absolutely. I mean, we talked about performance as being important for everyone. Yes. But, but a, a 1% different at an elite athlete is yeah. the difference between, you know, making the Olympics, going well in the Olympics, making the final in the Olympics, or winning a gold medal in the Olympics. You know, those little breakdowns are, are huge. Just ask any golfer the difference between 1%. That's uh, hitting the green or making it into the bunker. So that's it. Now, you talked uh, before, uh, um, or I've heard you say in, in previous podcasts, about um, five components uh, that you feel are, are critical to uh, performance. Can you go through those? Yeah, I kind of picked out some of these different components that I think kind of maybe cover the bell curve, the 80% of what people need to in order to perform best in the world. And I've kind of broken them down into awareness, control, endurance, mindfulness, and power. So if you break those down individually, awareness is exactly what we've been talking about. It's how well you're taking the world in and interpreting it and then responding to it as well. Control is your ability to do something purposeful. Um, This could be control of thought. It could be control of movement. Um, Anything that requires us to make something, do something purposeful requires control. And this is obviously neurological. So both the first two. Uh, awareness and control are both neurologically or brain-based in, in nature. Endurance. Endurance is super important. Um, endurance comes in multiple ways. Endurance can be metabolic, meaning that you have the proper substrate or the proper food and the proper breathing mechanisms that are associated with performance. It also has to do with production of neurotransmitters. You need to have proper production of neurotransmitters to sustain performance for a long period of time. Mindfulness sometimes is separated from the brain, but really that is the brain. You know, we, sometimes we separate the brain and the mind, and this has been a discussion that's been going on ever since the Renaissance era with Galen and these different guys back in, in ancient Rome. Um, there is no separation between the brain and the mind, but for, sense, uh, for, for ease of discussion, we talk about mindfulness being more like spirit, meaning like, um, are you meditating? Are you taking time and doing things for yourself? Are you relaxing? Are you... Do you have the yin and the yang in your life? Or are you 100% always going 100% all performance? Because I don't care who you are, the best athlete in the world, nobody can do 100% of anything 100% of the time. And then the final component kind of comes back into the world of chiropractic, of athletic training, of performance training, personal training, physical therapy. This is power, the concept of power. And you'll, you'll hear, choose my words very carefully. I said power, not strength, because this is a very clear uh, differentiation that one of my colleagues, Kenneth Jay, who's finishing up his PhD in this area, uh, there's a difference between power and strength. Strength is just how well you can move something or how much, how much force you can exert on something. But when you look at power, power comes as a factor of, a, of force and acceleration. So you have to have both of these components in order to have somebody that has performance enhancement do the best that they can. It's no good for us to be able to swing a baseball bat really hard if we can't swing it fast. Mm-hmm. So power also combines all the other things, and, and it's a prerequisite for all the other things to be able to have awareness and space so you can deliver that power or that strength, as most people call it, 
to the right area. So we need to have control, power, awareness, endurance, mindfulness. Those are the five components that I've identified for performance. So when um, working with clients and focusing on these five components, is this something that's all done within house at your clinic or do you sort of collaborate with other health professionals, say for example, in the mindfulness area? Yeah, the answer is yes to both of those. I mean, we've got, uh, I've been blessed to have a neurological and performance playground over here in Orlando. Um, we've got like a 7,000 square foot or 6,500 square foot facility. I don't know what that translates into square meters, but it's a, a pretty big place. Yeah, and sounds, we've got, sounds, big, uh, sounds big. B-I-G, yeah. big. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty big. And we've got, um, you know, we've got kettlebells. We've got treadmills. We've got... Um, you know, Olympic style lifting, we've got squat racks, we've got pull-up bars, um, you name it, we've kind of got everything there because we do focus on all of these things. So from the neurological component, and just, and I won't take too much time on this, we have equipment like sacodometers, which are these uh, specific cameras that take a thousand pictures per second of your eyes, and we ask you to move your eyes from target to target, and what we're able to do is we're able to watch their whole journey from start to finish of that eye movement. And think about this for a second. Uh, fast eye movement is completed in less than 100 milliseconds. A blink of an eye is about 170 milliseconds. So the things that we're actually looking at are really, really fast, and we're looking at their accuracy. Um, with the power component, we are doing strength training control. Uh, we make sure that people are doing their strength training in a very purposeful manner. One of the things that we often look about look at when you hear about kettlebells is people doing these types of swings where they have the kettlebell between their legs and they swing it either in front of them or above their head. Yeah. That's a uniplanar motion. Nothing in sports are ever really uniplanar. If you think about it across the board, everything is rotational. Mm. So we start looking at rotational vectors of strength training or power training. And we do do some mindfulness um, with biofeedback and we do things of that nature. But we do, do also work with great professionals across the board um, for those types of things. And one of the guys that I've been really starting to work a lot more with is Dr. Daniel Amen. And some of you guys might be familiar with him. He's like the number one psychiatrist, the most um, popular psychiatrist in the world. And he just loves what we're doing and we love what he's doing. So we collaborate and we also try and keep a lot of stuff in-house to make it a comprehensive solution for anybody that wants to come increase their performance, whether it's from one end of the spectrum or the other. So Matt, with your five sort of tiered definition of performance, I suppose the, there is, I'd argue, probably the mindfulness you could put into the sort of neurological component to some degree as well with awareness and control. They're sort of, are they what you consider three different sort of aspects to say what maybe a sports physical therapist might look at when they're trying to look at performance of their elite athletes in the work that they do? Is this where it differentiates your sort of interpretation and, and your work with athletes? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think no matter what um, area of healthcare or performance training you come from, you're going to have a bias. If you're looking, if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you're going to look at more of the power element. If you're more yeah. of a uh, sports psychologist, you're going to look more of the mindfulness element. If your basis is in nutrition or metabolics, you're going to look more at the you know, the endurance and the metabolic component. When you come from a neurology background, you're going to look more at this whole aspect of control and awareness. So I think no matter, you know, where you're coming from in life, you're going to have some sort of a bias. But I think the person that's going to be able to help their patient or their client the best is the person who's the cross trainer, the person that is well-rounded in all of those areas, knows a little bit about everything, and the person that's really going to be able to take that Olympic athlete who is at the top of their game has to be – you have to be at the top of your game. And you not only need to have the breadth, meaning you know a little bit about all of those, but you also have to have the depth in each one of those areas. So I found this to be a charge for me, I think, and it's a charge for me to recommit myself to learning more about different things that I maybe wasn't so comfortable with in the past. And in doing so, I've been able to open up um, – this world that didn't exist to me before, and I'm so excited to, to see it. And I'm so excited to collaborate with other experts, experts in the area and to find more mentors, if you will, uh, because there's some people that are really, really smart in these areas, and all I can do is try and learn more from them. Your approach is obviously very goal-orientated uh, and very specific to uh, your patient's need, particularly with the athletes. Um, 
and sports specific, of course. How different is it, say, helping a tennis player hit the perfect backhand and influence their neurology in that way, as opposed to um, you know, a, a soccer player to, to kick the perfect the goal? Like, is it are there, are there similarities in the in the two, or are they completely different approaches? Okay, so from the from the doctor side or the trainer side of things, there's not a whole lot of difference, but from the client or the patient side, there's a, a world of difference. So one of the things that I've realized, and uh, you guys have probably realized the same thing in practice, you can get so excited about how fast and accurate somebody's eye movements are, but that means absolutely nothing to that person. Um, you know, when you're seeing a baseball player or I, you know, I'm seeing a footballer from uh, the UK next week as a patient, um, the thing is, is that what they want to know is, can they kick a soccer ball better? Can they run faster? Can they be more accurate with their shot? Can they put, you know, the curve on the ball? Can they see the ball coming at them better? That's really what they want to look for. So people like basketball players, you have to find metrics that makes them see improvement. You have to set these goals, like you said. So what do you do? You look at how many free throws can you make out of 20? You look at what's your shuttle time? How many times? Uh, what's your time from going line to line? What's your vertical leap? You know, can you? How many times can you dribble a ball in thirty seconds? Counting those sort of things. How many times can you do crossovers between your legs, standing in one position, in thirty seconds? So you're going to start looking at metrics or measurements that that individual finds important, and you're going to measure them before you do your intervention. You're going to measure them after you do your intervention to prove to them that you're improving their performance. But at the same time, you also have to capture the metrics that you need in order to help that patient, such as your balance, such as your eye movements, your tracking, your reaction times, things of that nature. So I think that hopefully that answers your question, but that's, um, that's what I found to be the most important thing in setting goals and making this reproducible for people and also still diagnostic. Now, I mean, Matt, I better give you a bit of background here. Anthony tends to sometimes be a bit self-centered about things. And <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, Paul? look, no. you asked the question about tennis again, right? Oh, oh there we go. Because he loves his tennis. He was actually trying to get a bit of buy-in about his own personal game to try and do better on Saturday. But, you know, that's okay. I think he's got a bit Can of... I tell you, tennis to the side, it's cycling just at the moment. I know. Cycling. I was going to say, I think he's probably better at tennis and he beats his son at that. That's why he's focusing on that. Well, that's true. That. Exactly. That's that's true. Exactly. True. Exactly. So that's it. Now, you know, you mentioned about the word goals. So when patients um, come in from all persuasions, from athletes to the weekend warrior, do you sit down with them early on about establishing what their goals are or is it a little bit down the, ch- down, the, down the train? Every single patient that I see, the first thing that I ask them when I walk into an exam room after telling them hi and nice to meet you and thank you for coming is what are you expecting to get out of your time with me? Okay. And then a lot of times they'll start – They'll open up their mouth and it just comes out for 20 minutes. But I try to make it so I say, you know, if I was your performance or health genie and you rubbed me and I gave you one wish, what would that one wish be? And what ends up happening is you get this person that says, I want this, I want that, I want this. You know, I want to be able to walk better. I want to be able to control better. I want to be able to perform better. When you ask them for that one thing, usually there's a 10 to 12 second pause and something comes out of your mouth, their mouth. And that is the thing that I focus on because that is what's most important to that person. And whatever that is, that's how I direct my treatments. And I try to completely, uh, I try to be comprehensive and and resolving the issues that they have other than that. But I take the most priority in what they want to get done. And when you look at some of your neurological um, scheduling, for instance, uh, you know, Traditional chiropractic management might be managing a patient, you know, a couple times a week or three times a week. But I think in a conversation we had earlier, a few days back, you mentioned that sometimes you, with inputs to the to the to the brain, you might see them quite a bit during one particular day. Can you just explain to our listeners from Backchat how you titrate your treatments depending on what presents? Yeah, it would be interesting. Yeah, we could definitely do that. So. It's kind of funny because I don't know how it is over in Australia, but in the United States, a lot of people that see their patients very frequently get a lot of criticism saying that they're over-treating and that you know it's unnecessary. But when you start looking at the basis of this performance continuum that we're looking at, we're looking at the basis of the five pillars that we talked about. Every
every single one of them requires repetition, specificity, and intensity. Whether it's strength training, whether it's meditation, whether it's neurological, neuroscience, clinical applications of neuroscience, all of those things take repetition, intensity, and specificity. So when you're looking at the neurological side of things, your goal is to create neuroplasticity. And we know that neuroplasticity incur, occurs on the realm of nanoseconds. So, you know, one one millionth of a second, um, we have neuroplasticity created. But then if it's not sustained, it's lost. So it's almost like this pruning, right? You can imagine if your, your lawn grew every, you know, one, one nanosecond, what would have to happen is you have to cut it over and over again. So our body has ways of breaking down these pathways if they're not used, the whole use it or lose it phenomenon. So in order to really make sure that those pathways or those neurological connections inside the brain, the nervous system become efficient, what you need to do is you need to perform them over and over and over and over again the same exact way. Just like when you're training for muscle strength training, you don't go to the gym once per month or once every other week and expect to get stronger. So we've built a model around that. And what we do is we do what we call our three by five model meaning that we see patients three times per day for five days to capture both the repetition, the specificity, and the intensity. And what we found is that model works out so well for us that we, we don't plan on changing it anytime in the future. Now, there's about 20% of our patients in which those, that model doesn't work for. Either they don't have the endurance to tolerate that type of repetition and intensity. So we have to do is slow the schedule down a little bit. Or on the flip side of things, we also have people that have like degenerative conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's that are progressive and they get worse. And those people don't really apply to the three by five model because they need ongoing care. They need to maybe be seen once every month or two months or four months or something along those lines. So that's kind of where we're at this three by five model. And it seems to be working really well. And Dr. Carrick is really the one that kind of introduced me to that model way back in the day when uh, he, he asked me to come work with him. That's it. I mean, that's very interesting, isn't it, Anthony? That's a different model. It's not something that you would see often in many practices across the world. I think most practices, and I guess it's the way the practice is set up. I mean, I'm assuming, Matthew, that a lot of those times when they're coming in three times a day, they're going through and doing balance exercises or eye exercises. Um are you doing adjustments to the spine and that sort of stuff or three times a day or is it more a, a, I get a neuroplastic sort of rehab type of uh, program? That's a great question because in the, when it comes down to it, we're certainly chiropractors, right? And we need to look at the spine. We need to look at joint articulations and making sure they're moving well because if your joint articulations or your joints are not moving well, then how are you expected to have power or control or any of these things uh, that I listed before? So. If it's a professional athlete or even a recreational athlete or someone that we'll call well or healthy comes in to see me, the first thing I do is make sure that all of their joints and spine are moving properly. So I'll do an adjustment at the beginning of the week, and then we move from there into a performance enhancement, performance optimization, or you know, other people will call it rehabilitation model where we're doing, like you said, eye exercises, balance training, vestibular rehab. If it's someone that comes to me with a concussion, what I do is I usually go through the rehabilitation protocol first before I start doing anything with the spine because chiropractors know this, but maybe the rest of the world doesn't. A chiropractic manipulation, when delivered properly, can be the most powerful neurological stimulus that you can give to somebody, especially if you're doing it in the neck or the upper cervical spine. Um, so what we do is we, kind of like Spider-Man says, right, with great power comes great responsibility. So with this type of tool in our hands, we have to be judicious with this. So I like to make sure that if somebody comes into me injured, that they're fully rehabilitated before I bring the big guns out and really go ahead and give that neurological stimulation through the spine. But if it's someone that's healthy, I'll go ahead and do it in the beginning so that they have a proper foundation to move forward on. I hope that answers that question. That's good. Now, the, uh, another th uh, thing that I've heard you talk about in terms of is special exercises for core stability and how that core stability is something that's has to be exercised as a, a reflexogenic activity uh, because there's not something we necessarily have conscious control over. Can you expand on that just a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. When you start learning about the neurological pathways of spinal control and core control, 
it's such that there are no volitional pathways to different areas of your spine. For example, if I told you right now, uh, for some of the, you, the, you out there that are familiar with anatomy, can you please move T3 and not T4 mm. or T1 or T2, right? So if we had to move I'm individual trying, vertebrae, we could not do so. It's impossible for us to do that because there are no brain pathways for voluntary control of those types of things. So when we start looking at spinal control, core control, a lot of those things need to be exercised reflexogenically, meaning that you're not doing the control that your brain is subconsciously doing that control. So we start looking at um, different types of weighting, and this is all coming from a part of our brain we call the cerebellum. The cerebellum is the great orchestrator of our brain, and it's a subconscious orchestrator. It just says, this is what the brain wants me to do, and here's how we're going to execute the plan uh, so that we can do it properly. So when you start looking at core control and spinal control, one of the things that I love to do with my athletes is give them dynamic weights. So you'll see um, there's something called an earthquake bar. It's like this, um, or a bamboo bar. It's um, you know like a six-foot-long um, pole, and then what happens is you can attach different types of weights on it, five pounds, 10 pounds, kettlebells, whatever it is, and it bends. So what ends up happening is if you start looking at these types of things, you put this, this bamboo bar, this earthquake bar on your shoulders with weights on it, and you start doing squats. And what ends up happening is as you start coming up, the weight will get heavier than lighter, heavier than lighter as it bounces. And it really requires you to have good spinal control. But the thing is, is you have to have proper neurological control of your reflexes before you can do that. And that's where we start looking at the vestibular system, the eyes, and the, and the proprioceptive system. And that's probably a little deeper topic than we want to go for today, but we maybe we can do that another time for your learners where we can or your listeners where we can talk about how the brain controls these intrinsic or these inside core muscles. Another thing that um, I guess all health practitioners and certainly as chiropractors we get this uh, often where we have people have conceptions about what's healthy and what's not, what's good exercise and what's not. What are some of the classic exercise myths that you hear in practice? Oh, man. Um, I hear that the always heavier is better. Um, you know, the more reps you can do, the better. Uh, the more sweat that you're, you, you know, you're sweating, the better workout you're going to get. Um, I also hear that uh, lifting weights is a cardiovascular exercise because your heart beats real hard. Um, a lot of these things are all mythical and they're not true. Um, and, I, and I don't know if this is something I just found out from one of my buddies who's an expert in this, this guy, Kenneth Jade, that I was talking about earlier. He's, uh, he's going for the world record in the 100 meter row. And he's done, he's the type of, type of guy that's like me, how I am with neurology or how Dr. Carrick is with neurology. This guy is with cardiovascular health and cardiovascular output. So he's essentially dove into this area of rowing. And his research is showing that there is no better cardiovascular exercise than rowing. And I'm not, not necessarily rowing on water because that's a whole different ballgame requiring a lot more skill. But on land rowing, using like rowing machines, um, he says that he can burn more calories and get a better cardiovascular workout rowing than anything else he's ever done, including running or anything else. So that's kind of interesting. So that's, that's one of the myths that you know, lifting weights because it makes you breathe heavy and sweat hard and your heart pounds real hard that you're getting a cardiovascular exercise. But he did some math to say if you wanted to uh, burn off a couple donuts doing weight training, you'd have to weight train for 12 hours straight. Wow. So it's get impressive. It, get onto that rowing machine. Right. Yeah. Better, better add that to the list. Uh, so certainly, Matt, in regards to performance optimization, we see that using the brain and function neurology is a, a very important aspect of it. And I think really in, t in tonight's podcast, you've, you've illuminated us to a few different concepts with control and awareness that are important. What do you see regards the future of this sort of work? Because uh, it's sounding really exciting. And where do you see it going? Yeah, I think we've proven our merit in the area of neurological disease and injury. I think that, you know, chiropractors and functional neurologists, as sometimes are called in the United States, or people individuals that are focusing on clinical applications of neuroscience have really done some great things for people that need rehabilitation. But like I said in the beginning of this, kind of circling back around, that aspect of neurological rehabilitation is just 
part of a performance continuum. So I think that if once this kind of hits our world, this world of clinical neuroscience and rehabilitation, that I think people are going to start adopting this mindset and it's going to open up everybody to be able to help you know, your weekend warriors or, you know, everybody can see a professional athlete if they have the right mindset and the right understanding and the right prerequisite knowledge. Um, so I, you know, I think that's really where the direction is going to go is I think that people are going to be able to start helping more people beyond the people that they're helping right now and really expand our service offerings to uh, a group of people that previously never thought that we could help them. And I think earlier you you said that what I consider the magic C word, and it's actually not chiropractic, it's actually collaboration. Mm. And, you know, when you're describing all these different genres, and we've, been, we've interviewed a PhD psychologist on mindfulness, and uh, he took us through a process of calming the brain and, and centering the brain so that we can think and function optimally. At the end of the day, we're going to have, I suppose, skill sets that we can have to a certain level and scopes of practice we can move towards, but then we're going to have to work with a team of practitioners that we can collaborate with in order to get the results, especially in, with athletes, but even other pa- other patients we see every day. Is that what you see is the sort of that maybe missing link or important link going forward? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yes. That's what we look at so intensely, especially in my model. I mean, you have to realize that I'm seeing people for one week and some people would criticize me saying that, you know, you're only seeing somebody from one week, you know, what kind of changes can you make in one week? And they're absolutely right. We can make some dramatic changes in one week, but they don't usually stick unless the person does follow up care. So one of the, and we keep talking about pillars, one of the pillars that my practice is built upon is collaboration. So what we need is we need, if somebody were to come see me for a week, I need someone that's trained well to send them back to, to do their exercises. Now, the exercises that we give people are not necessarily super, super hard. They're easy. But let's not confuse easy with simple, right? Because there's a difference between easy and simple. These exercises are very complex neurologically and from a performance basis, but they're very easy for somebody to do. So if you can take somebody, help them get a better state of performance, and then prescribe them easy exercises to do that somebody just needs to monitor so, for example, some of the, I just saw a patient um, last week that was referred to me by a chiropractor in New York City, and this patient had early onset, oh, <coughs> excuse me, early onset Alzheimer's, um, and uh, she referred her down for a week, and we made some great changes with her in a week. But that patient was so happy that I was sending her back to her chiropractor to watch her to make sure she's doing these exercises appropriately, and she just said it was like. The, uh, just the, the weight of the world we lift, lifted off their back because they were afraid they were going to come to us and then we were going to say, okay, you're better, now just go home, and then they were going to be on their own. So collaboration is a hugely important thing, especially when there's so many talented people out there in the world that know more than I do, that know more than you guys do about certain topics. So the more we work together, the person that benefits the most is our client or our patient. So that's what it's ultimately about, is benefiting the, the person that's trusting you with their health. Excellent. Now, now, Matt, one of the things that we like to do at Backchat is to understand a little bit more about uh, our experts, and in that being you, and, and just to understand if there's been a particular point in time where you've had a pivotal experience uh, uh, that's really shaped you as a practitioner and made... Dr. Matthew Antonucci, the, the person that he is today. Can you recall a particular moment in time? Well, I, I kind of gave one a little earlier. One of the pivotal times was in, when I was in chiropractic school and I decided to move forward with, uh, you know, kind of clinical applications of neuroscience. But I would probably have to say the most pivotal moment in my life was when I was in my own private practice in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I had decided straight out of school that I was going to be a neurological specialist. I wasn't going to have it any other way. So I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where I knew nobody. I just went there because I visited and it seemed like a nice place to live. Um, And I set up shop there and opened up clinical practice uh, doing all neurological cases. And it was a struggle in the beginning. Um, I could definitely admit to that. But I started, my business started picking up. My schedule was pretty full and all of a sudden, I was sitting in my office one evening uh, doing some paperwork, and my phone rings. I pick up my phone, and it says Ted Carrick on it. So I was like, oh, man, Dr. Carrick's calling me. You know, and at this point in time, his relationship with uh, our relationship was just at its start, um, and to receive a call from 
Ted Karak was like receiving a call from the Pope or the president or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So we know I that really you know, I, I sat up nice and straight and tall, took a deep breath in, yeah. I cleared my throat and I said, good evening, professor. And he says, hello, my boy. He goes, um, I'm going to be working at a clinic in Atlanta and I'm looking for some people that are pretty talented. And I wanted to know if you were interested in coming to work with me full time. And I was just sitting there absolutely speechless. My, you know, my brain and my, and my gut were telling me to say yes, but then the other half of my brain was saying, but wait a second, what about your practice? Mm. You know, you spend so much time and energy putting this thing together, what do you do? Um, and I kind of let both sides speak. So I said, Professor, I'm going to give you a tentative yes. Um, however, I just have a responsibility to my patients that I'm seeing now that I have to finish off there and see their their care through the end and then I will be there so essentially what I did is I stopped taking new patients that next day uh, I didn't schedule any more patients and I for about three or four weeks I continued seeing the patients that I had and I literally walked away from my practice in Charleston moved to Atlanta to work full-time under Dr. Carrick so that was probably the most pivotal and drastic thing I've ever done in my life and it was a, a big financial hit but it was also a financial investment in my future so I don't regret I don't regret it for a second, and as a matter of fact, I, I'm so grateful for it, and I can't thank him enough for his guidance and for the opportunity. Fantastic. That's the word, isn't it? I mean, Anthony, you've had many associates, myself as well, and it comes down to that opportunity thing, isn't it? You know, you, there's, there's moments in our careers where certain things are thrown to us, and we have the choice, don't we? We have the choice to either fall back to a conservatism approach or take a big risk, take a punt. And, you know, start again in the process as Matt was into in his situation after he started his practice and then take that opportunity and, you know, what, I think there's no regrets now. Oh, the road less yeah. travelled is sometimes the, uh, the the one that you need to be taking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Bon, I think you're exactly right. I won't go too far on a tangent with this, but I think it's worth saying, you know, my dad once told me, you know, he said, he's like, Matthew, he goes, the biggest risk will always give the biggest reward. And he said that if there's one thing that he would have done differently in his life, he would have taken more risk. He said that um, he wasn't much of a risk taker, but he started talking to me about my grandparents. And I, like I said, I won't go on too much of a tangent, but my grandfather, um, who I used to look to, up to my whole life before he passed, he was a um, he used to live in Poland in the Ukraine, and he got pulled into a concentration camp during World War II, and um, he. Uh, he, the reason why he was in the concentration camp because he refused to serve for the for the Nazi army, and they put him and my my his whole family into a concentration camp. And him, my grandmother, and at the time their four year old son, uh, my uncle Louis, escaped from the concentration camp. Uh, they got into a German Nazi train, sat in the bathroom with their feet on the door for twenty hours, and all of the the Nazi soldiers thought the bathroom was out of order. Um, and until the train stopped, the train got off, and they escaped, and they hopped on a boat to the United States so that I can be here doing what I am doing today. So uh, just like my dad said, mm. the the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. So that's kind of how I looked at that opportunity. Look, that's, you know, look, I can just share a similar story. My father in World War II, he, he got on a train. He had to go one way or the other, and if he went the wrong way, it was just pure luck. He would have ended up in a concentration camp and killed. He he's Italian, fought in the Italian army in the World War Two, and he was just lucky. And I mean, it's just, and you think of the express from that for, for, from that fortune, you know. Then he had four kids here, and you know, opportunities arise. And I suppose similar to you, Matt, I just I kind of personally respect every day and uh, appreciate every moment because you just need to hear those experiences to to realize that's been part of your life as my life. And, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of feel compelled to do something in this world. Yeah. Yeah. To make absolutely. the most of it. Now back to the, the context of, 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 uh, of our sports performance. Uh, I'm sure our back chat listeners would love to hear some take home messages. So could you perhaps encapsulate three points that, uh, you think could, uh, be used by those who listen to this show? Oh man, we talked about so much, but yeah, I think I could do that. Um, so essentially, the, the basis of performance is multifactorial. You have awareness of your environment. You've got control of your body. You have endurance, mindfulness, and power. So when you're looking at performance enhancement, we really have to assess all of them, and we also have to direct any type of rehabilitation or exercises or therapy to each component 
of performance in order to get a performance outcome. I think a second thing would be is that performance is a continuum. Uh, you have to establish where your client or your patient is on the continuum and where they need to go. So it's like you're starting here. This is the direction we're going. And you have to have metrics. So the third point I would say is that performance must be measured. You need to have a tool that is reproducible and more importantly, relevant to the patient or client's goals, but still be diagnostic. So whether that's something that you measure in their sport, in addition to uh, some sort of um, objective or measurable outcome, uh, like some technology, whatever it is, you have to be able to show that person that you're moving them in the direction to performance so that they continue to do so. Otherwise, if you do some different things to a, a client or a patient, and you're seeing performance, but they're not seeing performance, there's going to be incongruity there. And what's going to end up happening is the patient's going to end up suffering them because they're not going to do the things that you ascribe them or prescribe them to do. So um, the, the multifactorial aspect of performance, the continuum aspect of it, and also the measurement of performance, I think, are the three most important things that you could take home from this uh, conversation that we had today. Well, I'm not sure if I'll beat my son up the uh, the Mount Hotham tour, tour of Bright, but uh, I'm certainly going to use everything you've told me today and uh, put it to good use, uh, Matthew. We well, thank you so much for sharing your your inspirational and very intelligent um, conversations. We've really enjoyed it here, and I'm sure our listeners at Backchat have as well. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Plus, now for regards, Matt's uh, Plasticity Brain Centers, they've just opened a $2 million facility focused on clinical applications of neuroscience in rehabilitation and performance optimization. You can check this website at www.plasticitybraincenters.com and also, if you like, like them on Facebook. Also, the Carrick Institute is also launching a full human performance optimization program in Orlando in late 2016. So keep your eyes out for some intro courses and early registration which will be coming soon at www.carrickinstitute.com. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook webpage, www.facebook.com.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.